0: We're taking a break from our series looking at spiritual warfare, which I've really been enjoying. I don't know about you guys, but I think it's been good and timely and a lot of good thoughts there. Uh, But instead, tonight we're going to sort of retreat from the front line, as it were, and be reminded of the wonderful plan that our God has for us in Christ. You know, we're here at church a day after. After a day of battle, and we're kind of rallied together spiritually speaking at at base camp as God's people, and our commander wants to encourage us from His Word and remind us of the richness of His power, and to remind us that we're not fighting a losing battle as a Christian out there. You know it's tough, and you know you guys we're taking live fire. Sometimes we're in hotter zones than other, but but we're not out here fighting a losing battle. We serve an able God who walks with us through life. In that video, we saw that His very name was Emmanuel, God with us, and that that was His purpose, to be with us in this life. And He has carved out a path for fullness for us in His grace. But like any marching orders, as we've been seeing in our series on spiritual warfare, it's going to be up to us whether we'll obey and carry them out or whether we'll ignore those orders, and head down some different path. Find your way over to Philippians chapter 1, go eat popcorn. Does everybody know go eat popcorn, right? No? Who knows go eat popcorn, what that means? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. So if you don't know where Philippians is, it's the P in popcorn. So go eat popcorn, find your way over to Philippians chapter 1. And this is a very quotable book of the Bible. I'm sure many of you find some of your very favorite verses in these passages Here, Paul, who can so often, in my mind at least, be very technical, very theological, very doctrinal. I get into, you know, we read passages in Romans, and it makes my brain want to explode all over the place, and he can be very technical and very doctrinal. But here in this book, he opens up his heart to speak very personally to some dear friends of his in Philippi. And of course, it wasn't just Paul speaking, but it was the Holy Spirit speaking eternal truth through him. And we'll see… By extension, the Lord is speaking to us as well. It's not just Paul speaking to a group of believers in Philippi. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and I as well. And so, let's look at our text. It starts in verse 1, and then we'll come back and make a couple of observations. In verse 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ." Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Before we move further, let's pray. Lord, thank You again for tonight, for the life that You've given each and every one of us. Lord, how You are faithful to, uh, from our perspective, raise the sun in the morning as a demonstration that your mercies are new every morning, and as we sing, Lord, we just praise you for paying the debt that we owed, the debt that we owed because of our sin and because of our imperfection, because of our failure, but Lord, you paid that debt, and so we just want to surrender ourselves to you, submit ourselves to you, and come before you and say, what do you want us to do, Lord? Who do you want us to be? What have you made us to be? And we pray, Lord, that your word, these sweet verses would encourage each and every one of us tonight, no matter Uh, Whether we're struggling tonight in great ways, in small ways, or maybe we're in a time of blessing, Lord, we pray that You would encourage us and stir us up and speak to us from Your Word, because You are real and You are speaking, and Your desire is to reach into our lives tonight uh, to do all this and more, Lord, as we follow You and as You work that work that You've decided to do in our lives. We love You, Lord, and we praise You. In Your name we pray, amen. One of the things that catches my attention about this passage is the big, broad brush strokes that Paul is using in his choice of words. Let me scan through a couple of these for you. All the saints, always in every prayer, it is right for me to think this of you all. You all are partakers, he says. How greatly I long for you all. He says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Paul is speaking big in these verses. It's it's not small, you know, surgical words. He's talking in big strokes. These are chainsaw words just as a swath through our minds. And he's talking about these big ideas and big plans that God has for His church. But alongside that bigness, hopefully you saw a deep personal element to what he's saying. This is a sweet letter, It's so intimate the way that he's talking to these friends of his in Philippi. And he even says to them, hey, I have a special place in my heart for you. I think about you all the time. The Apostle Paul, who traveled so much of the world and saw so many things and had so many things happen, he said, you guys, you guys are so in my heart and in my mind. It's very personal and it's very loving. Now, step back, and as we've already mentioned, remember that it's not just Paul talking to Philippians, but it is the Holy Spirit talking to us. In His eyes, you are significant and you are special to the God of heaven and earth. He says so in His Word. He says, you're significant to me. I know you. I formed you. I've numbered the hairs on your head. I know your name. I've seen you from before the foundations of the earth, and I carved out a path for you because you are special to me. You are significant to me. And that is an amazing thing. And this big plan that God has for our lives includes the power of His grace and the transformation of your life. It includes spiritual abundance that fills up your life more and more as you walk with God. He has a destination in mind for your life. And that's why He said, Follow me, let's go somewhere together. It's not just that He says, I want to get together with you once. He says, no, I want you to follow me, which explains that He's going somewhere, and He wants us to come along. Now we may feel insignificant at times or in different ways. I don't know about you, but maybe you feel insignificant at times. I do it sometimes. In our worldly accomplishments, maybe we look around and we say, well, what kind of impact am I really making? Or in some of our relationships, perhaps you feel insignificant at times, but always remind yourself with the truth of the Bible that you are significant to God. He knows your name. He loves you. He cares for you. He has you as the apple of His eye, the Bible says. And He's gone to great lengths to declare that to you, that you are significant to Him. And He's proven it with His actions over and over again, not just through history, not just in the Word, but in your own life as we step back and look at what God has done. Or as some of the, you know, the older Bible teachers would say, what God has wrought. I mean, the Lord proving His love for us and how significant we are in His eyes. Now, Paul describes how significant we are to God here in these verses, and Paul is a man who knows what he's talking about, right? If we had to describe Paul and say, hey, does Paul know what he's talking about? The answer is, of course, yes, he's a man who speaks with authority to us. He was a great thinker. We should never discount the, the fact that Paul was an incredible intellect. Now he would tell you that, of course, all of that was rubbish, all of that was waste for the sake of the gospel, but be that as it may, the man was an incredible thinker and intellect. He was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man whose life God had radically transformed and used multiple times in multiple places. He was an apostle. He was selected to pin a huge amount of Scripture. And so, as He speaks to us, we should listen because He knows what He's talking about. He's speaking with authority. And there in verse 1, He opens His letter, and He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to a specific group. We know that. It says, all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, the initial audience was in Philippi. But if you are in Jesus Christ tonight, if you are in Christ Jesus, these words are for you as well. Are you in Christ? Then these words are for you. If you're not a Christian here tonight, and perhaps one or two, that is true, well, then if you're not born again, these words that we're going to read, they cannot apply to you. Not yet, at least. The Lord wants them to apply to you. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said, I draw all men to myself, but He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And so, if you're not a Christian here tonight, these words, these wonderful words of love and significance and and God's plan and His power, cannot apply to you yet unless you surrender your life to the Lord, as we sang about just a few moments ago. You know, As an aside for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we have people that we know or people who impact our lives or leaders out in the world that we see and they who aren't Christians, who aren't believers, who aren't in Christ, and we will want things for them or we'll expect things of them that are biblical. We expect them to stand up to a certain standard or perform to certain values and those sorts of things. But if they aren't in Christ, man, we're getting the cart before the horse, right? Let's take politicians as an example. We look at these politicians, and on one hand, we would say, well, yeah, I mean, if we evaluate what they say, and if we evaluate what they do in their behavior and how they live their life, we would say, yeah, it seems from their fruit that they are not in Christ. And then when they don't live up to the values of Christ or the values of the Bible, we're shocked and incensed and we're upset about it. Why aren't you guys living up to these values that you should be living up to? Well, they're not in Christ. Why would they live up to something when they don't have the power to do so? The only reason we're able to live up to the ideals of Christ is because Christ empowers us to do so. Now, take marriage. Now, we love biblical marriage, obviously. It's important to us. We believe in it. We trust in it. We cling to the Lord in it. But we get upset with the world when they don't live up to the standard of biblical marriage. But how can they? How can the world live up to biblical marriage if they don't have Jesus Christ? If you aren't in Christ, you haven't had your life transformed, you can't live the kind of life God wants for you. We know that, but sometimes we get that disconnected in our minds. And so, the answer isn't to get angry with people when they aren't living up to what God says about certain values or certain things. The answer is to get those people in Christ. Because once they're in Christ, then Jesus will transform their lives from the inside out. And when a heart is transformed, well, then that bleeds into marriage, that bleeds into business, that bleeds into their societal impact and all of those things. And so it's fine. We can get involved. We can stand up for our values. We can proclaim them, and we can try to influence culture with them. That's all fine. But at the end of the day, if a person's life is not transformed, if they're not in Jesus Christ, they're not going to live up to what Jesus Christ wants for them. And so, we need to remember that. If you're not a Christian, the beneficial promises of God cannot apply to you. If you are in Christ, they can. It's that simple. And so, Paul is speaking to a large group here. He says those are in Christ. And specifically, he mentions the bishops and the deacons tagged on the end there. Uh, And here's something I was reminded of. It seems like Paul does a little carbon copy here. He says, two, you know, on your email… Two, all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. C.C., the bishops and the elders. And I was reminded of something there, and, and it's that a healthy spiritual life aspires to greater spirituality. What can we learn from that? Well, Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy 3.1. He says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we studied this back when we were looking at the gifts. We're told to earnestly desire the best spiritual gifts. And that's for, that's for everybody. We're all to desire the best spiritual gifts. We're all to desire greater spirituality. And if our spiritual lives are healthy, if we're walking with the Lord, then we're going to be hungry for more to do, more ways to serve God, more ways to interact with God and experience Him. And so, that to say, as He carbon copies, you know, these leaders in the church, it's not that they were, you know, these special holy people that God said, well, you guys are a separate class of priests. Remember, He says to us, no, you're all a chosen priesthood. You're all a special generation, and we all should aspire to greater spirituality. We should all desire zealously the best gifts. the different offices in the church, Paul says, hey, if a man desires the position of a bishop or an elder, he desires a good thing. And so, if our spirit is healthy, well, then it's not going to be dormant. It's going to be operating and active in the ways God asks us to be active. What did the master say to the servant who had wisely invested the five talents or the ten talents? Did he say, hey, you did a great job, you did what I asked you to do, now go kick back and don't do anything else? That's not what he said. He said, great, you did what I asked you to do. Now, let's do some more together. Let's go deeper. Let me give you even more to work with, more to do, more ways to serve. And so, a healthy spirituality aspires to greater spirituality. Now, to this group of spiritual people, Paul says, grace and peace to you from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And down in verse 7, take a look at it. He makes this interesting statement about grace, and he says there, you are all partakers with me of grace. And so to Paul, apparently, grace was something to be received and to be continued in. It was something that we partake in. Now, grace isn't something that we generate. You can't just generate grace out of your own life. It is from God. It is of God. However, it's clear from Scripture that grace is also something that we don't want to just take for granted. Oh, the Lord gave grace, and so that's it. I take it for granted now. No, instead, we're told it needs to be received and we're told it needs to be continued in. We need to partake of it as Christians regularly. We partake of it once for salvation. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, in a salvific sense, we partake of grace once. But in our regular living as Christians in the power of God, we continue to partake of God's regular grace perpetually as we live our lives before the Lord. A couple of verses that illustrate this. Listen to these. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And then in Acts 13, 43, this is what we read. It says, Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Later in 2 Thessalonians, we read that our daily hope comes through grace. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that the heart of the Christian is established by grace. And so, we find that grace is available, sent from heaven to God's people, but it's something that we have to engage with, we have to partake of, we have to receive it from God and continue in it day by day so that the Lord can effectively work in our lives. Let's think about it this way, illustration from the Old Testament. On Wednesday mornings, we're studying through the book of Exodus, and so a lot of my reading has been about the tabernacle and how it was laid out and all of that. Interesting structure. The tabernacle was really an incredible place. It was thought up in the mind of God, planned by Him, directed by Him. He said, hey, this is how you will set it up. This is how you will build it. And He gave it so that human beings could interface with Him and receive atonement for their sins and be made right and worship Him. It was a wonderful thing, an incredible thing. They could go there and worship and experience God, but you had to come in through the door at the front of the courtyard, not just once, but perpetually. It says, hey, come in all the time. I want you to come in all the time, and here you can worship me, and here you can interact with me in a special way, but you got to come through this courtyard. It wasn't just an open plaza. There was the little tent of the tabernacle separated into two parts, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And then around that, there was a big wall of curtains that made a courtyard. And there was a little doorway, a little gate on the front side, and you had to come in through that door. And these curtains were about seven and a half feet tall. So you couldn't look over. even if you were a basketball player, even if you were Josh Garman, you couldn't see over, you couldn't see over it. And the Lord said, hey, I want you guys to come in. I want you guys to experience me. It wasn't that God was trying to keep people out. He said, no, come in, come in, come in. But you got to come, you actually have to come in. If you want to interface with me, you have to come interface with me. It's not just going to happen on its own. You're going to have to get up out of your tent, take a little trip, go through the door, and come interact with me and worship me and receive a a communion with me. And that's how people would interact with the Lord. It's not that He was trying to keep people out. It's just that He had a specific method for how they would interact with Him. Jesus said what in John chapter 10? He said this, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. And so God wants us to have fullness and satisfaction in our spiritual lives, and He has provided a way by His grace that we can do that. But we have to go through His way, we have to go through Jesus by loving Him and obeying Him and receiving Him in His Word, not just once, but partaking of grace perpetually as we live out this life. And I'm not saying that we get saved every day, we receive salvation once, but living the Christian life is a perpetual It's a thing that each day we wake up and we surrender ourselves to God and say, okay, God, today, what is it that you would have me to do? Today, I want to follow you like I did yesterday, like I want to tomorrow. Today, what is it that you have for me? Paul continues in verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. There's a lot of talk about prayer in these verses. Paul was a prayer, this great mind, this great missionary, this great church planner, busy guy, but man, did he pray in like manner of his Savior. Was anybody more busy than Jesus Christ? Yet what a great example of continual, perpetual time dedicated to prayer. Jesus oftentimes going without sleep, going without food, going without comfort so that he could go and pray. And Paul, we see mimicking uh, that characteristic of Jesus. Now, just because these Philippians were Christians, and just because they were Christians who were doing a great job, you know, the book of Philippians, there's there's no big rebuke, there's no big error of doctrine. Like Galatians, they were in a real error. Corinthians, man, they had all kinds of problems. Philippians isn't like that. They were really doing great as a church. They had a minor problem between two ladies, and Paul just kind of casually says, hey, just get along with one another, be of the same mind. But other than that, there's no big rebuke. There's no big, you know, uh, you know exhortation. There's just a, a, a great encouragement to them. But even though they were doing a great job and living the Christian life, and even though they were Christians and all that, it certainly didn't mean they didn't need prayer. Paul, in his thinking, thought, "Man, these people need prayer all the time. He thought, every time I think of them, I should pray for them. And that's what he did. They needed it. We need it. We need to be prayed for, and we need to pray for others. I like how he words it here. He says, every time you cross my mind, I pray for you. That, you know, sits me down <laughs> and realizes that, man, like, that is such a different mindset than what I have. Or Paul thinks, I just thought about these friends of mine. They're not particularly suffering. They're not particularly backsliding. They're, they're doing it. And so, I need to pray for them. I need to thank God for them. I need to lift them up. Dan Finfrock is a name that a lot of you know. He's been a Calvary Chapel missionary and pastor for many years. He goes all over the world, usually in difficult places, third world places, places where persecution is rampant, and he teaches native pastors there how to study the Bible without outside materials. He goes to places where they don't have commentaries, they don't have the internet, they don't have concordance, concordances and things like that. And he says, well, if you have the Bible, or he tells stories like when he goes to China, Pastors will, you know, walk a hundred miles, and they'll only have a piece of a Bible that they've written down. Hey, I have four chapters of Mark. And then they get together, and they share, and they rewrite what each other has. They have a little three-ring binder with pieces of the Bible. And, but he teaches them how to study God's Word without these other outside things. Hey, we're pro-commentaries and all of that, but people in Sudan, people in China, they don't have that benefit. And so, Dan Finfrock, he goes and he teaches pastors, hey, you can study the Bible and you can teach the Bible the way that it needs to be taught uh, just with that. But he's been here before, either doing a seminar or teaching on Sunday morning. I've heard him say at least once, I think more than once, he'll say, hey, by the way, when I'm gone, if you think of me please pray for me. He says, because usually what has happened in the past is people say, hey, Dan, I thought of you last Thursday, and, uh, and so I prayed for you. And he's like, yeah, last Thursday I had a gun being held to my head by some communists who said, if you're a Christian, we're going to kill you. And then the Lord jammed their weapons. He has all these crazy, like, Acts, Book of Acts-style stories. And so he says, hey, if you think of me, please pray for me somebody do a silent prayer for Dan Finbrock right now. But he says, hey, he had this kind of mindset that Paul had. If you thought of me, it's because the Holy Spirit's prompting you, and I need you to pray for me. And he had that kind of understanding. And what we learn here is that we want to be growing in our prayer lives. And as is the case with almost every aspect of our Christianity, our prayer lives should be ever growing more outward-oriented rather than inward-oriented. Paul thought of these other Christians, and he thanked God for them, and then he made requests for them with joy. There are a few different prayer methods out there. Probably the most famous one I've heard of is the Acts method. Any of you heard of the Acts method? Okay, man… We're gonna to have to do like a go eat popcorn axe method, those sorts of things. Like, but that's fine. So, uh, the axe method of praying is just sort of a a way of sort of structuring your prayer. Um, to be honest, it's not something I regularly do. But the idea is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and it just reminds us that okay, my prayer life isn't just a support request. You know here. I do like a lot of the tech stuff. And so, you know, I'll have to get on support forums or I'll have to contact support all the time. And there's no reason to contact support for these different, you know, companies or whatever. I don't contact them to thank them for being a company. I contact them like, hey, I need something and I need it now. This is broken. This isn't working right. This is what you said was gonna happen, but then it didn't happen. And so those support lines are only for me to put in a request. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer is much more than that. Prayer is an act of worship and an act of communication with God. And so, you know, I think those sorts of uh, prayer methods, like Acts can be helpful. Certainly, they're not. we don't want to be legalistic about it and say, well, you have to divide all your prayers into four parts, and they have to be equal parts. But they can be helpful to remind us that, oh, yeah, I want to adore God in my prayer. I want to have joy in my prayer. I want to confess in my prayer because the Bible tells me to. And so, those things can be helpful and decent disciplines to help us not slip into a self-oriented prayer life. Verse 6 says this, being confident of this very thing, we know this verse, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is such a big verse with so many thoughts packed into it. First of all, we need to remind ourselves that Paul was not living the easy life when he wrote these words. He was being unjustly imprisoned. He was an innocent man shackled by people who hated him can you imagine being put in jail even though you're innocent? I mean, I'd freak out. Wouldn't you freak out? And Paul had such a confidence in his Lord. Despite his circumstances, he was convinced that not only were things going to work out for the Philippians, but they were going to work out for him as well. Why? Because he knew God is at work. All over this planet, right now, God is working. He has put in motion not only a plan for the world, but also for your life. God is in motion a plan for your life. Life. And those plans that he is working on have ultimate definite conclusions. Glorification in his presence. As you are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that is the plan that he is working on. Not just for a few, but for all of his people. For the world, God's plan is that he is going to return and he is going to eradicate sin and put right what we made wrong. And we're excited about that. For you and me as Christians, the plan is going to be somewhat individualized. The ultimate goal is effectively the same, but the plan He has for you and I are individualized. And He's going to conform us in one way or another into the image of His Son. And so, the question is, are we following where He's going? The question is not whether, is God working in my life? Oh, God is working. He's working all over the planet. He does not grow weary. He does not rest. The question is whether we're cooperating and allowing him to make progress in us. One of my best favorite examples of how we fool this up, how we mess this up, is the beginning of the story of Abraham, right? God comes to Abram. He says, I have a plan for you. I have a land for you. I have a future for you. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to go. This is what I have for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to transform your life. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to do all that. And Abraham says, okay, I'll do that and then he waits five years to do it. The Lord says, get away from your family, get out of your land, and Abraham says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then five years later is when he does it. Now, do you think God wanted to wait five years for that to happen? I don't think so, because He didn't say, wait five years and get out from your family, get out from Ur of the Chaldees. He said, go get out from Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Abraham said, well, I'm kind of into your plan, but I'm going to wait five years because I'm not quite sure. You know, you fast forward and you think of all that time, man, and the consternation that Abraham and Sarah had, where's our son of promise? And the Lord's probably sitting there, and if I can be respectful, thinking, yeah, I wanted him to come five years sooner, but you took your sweet time cooperating with me. Your your boy could be here already. Your boy could be five years old already, but you waited. You didn't cooperate. I'm not going to force my plan upon you. I'll wait. You want to wait, I'll wait. But I want to work in your life. And He waits for us to cooperate with His plan. And so, God is completing a work in your life, but we need to go through what I'm calling the permit process. You know, when you're building something, there's a permit process, and at different times, you need different permits. But with the Lord, the question is, are we permitting God to do what He wants to do? Because He waits. He doesn't do stuff under the table. He doesn't say, I don't care about the permit process. I'm just going to do this however I want. He says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for you to permit me to do this work that I want to do. When the Lord moves and directs and prunes and shapes us, are we permitting that or are we resisting it? Paul was joyful and excited about what God was definitely doing in his life and the lives of the Christians in Philippi because he knew they were partaking in the grace of Jesus regularly and perpetually. And he says, man, I know how you guys are positioned to God, how you are submitted to Him, and so I know that He is working right now in your midst. Verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Paul expressed that these people were in his mind and in his heart. As I mentioned before, of all people, Paul had some good excuses to not be concerned with people many cities away, right? Most of the time, he was barely hanging on to his own life. But he thought he said, man, I'm thinking about you guys i'm being caned and flogged and imprisoned i'm thinking about you guys and i'm praying for you guys he was starting these churches he's writing letters he's making disciples he's receiving all these attacks from you know different than the judaizers and from the romans and from all these other people he says but i think of you you have a special place in my heart our circumstances may get difficult at times they may be downright dire Well, that's all the more reason for us as Christians to open up our hearts to our brothers and sisters in Christ and really knit ourselves to them in love and fellowship. It is not going to profit us as people to be isolated families or isolated individuals. It, It can't profit us. We need to be knit together with our brothers and sisters. And although being in a loving fellowship relationship with other people is not always easy, in the long run, it's what we need and it's what God wants for us. We've got to open up our hearts to be knit together with the rest of the body of Christ. A good verse on how to be in that kind of Christian fellowship with others is Ephesians 4.2. It says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Like the song says, love, love will keep us together, right? And we need to be together, supporting one another, praying for one another, part of each other's hearts and lives. Verse 8 says this, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Our God is an affectionate God, and that's certainly good news for us. I'm certainly glad about it in my own life. He is affectionate to us, but His desire is also to be affectionate through us. It's not a good thing if Christianity in our culture is more known for animosity than it is for affection. That's not a good thing. Now, of course, some of the bad rap that we receive out in the culture is undeserved. Some of it is prejudicial or simply untrue. But in all honesty, I think we could step back from the American church culture and say that a lot of the criticisms of the church from the culture is deserved because a lot of times we're more known, not us specifically, but the church in America is oftentimes more vocal and more known for our animosity of those we hate or what is repugnant to us. And that's not what the Lord wants. He says, hey, I poured affection onto you, and now I want to pour it through you to others. We're called to shocking amounts of love and grace, the kind that God showed to us. That's the kind He wants to show through us as well. And so, let's be known for love and affection, not animosity. Verse 12 of Colossians 3 says this, since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults, we see that again, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. The Lord is radically affectionate, and His desire is to multiply His affection through His people. Verse 9 of our text, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. There's a lot to learn about prayer in these verses, how to pray for others. Um, how to seek God's will in prayer, those are things we should pay attention to in our personal lives. But what we also learn here is that the grace of God, when we partake of it, explodes love in our lives. And that love doesn't just feel things, it does things. This love that God is growing in our lives gets us moving and developing in our relationships and in our affection. And here we see in our knowledge, in our discernment. Not just here and there, but more and more abounding, he says. There is a limitless supply of God's transformative power for each and every one of us. Jesus said, hey, there's a time coming when sin is going to be rampant and love will grow cold. But that does not have to describe us if we will abide in Christ, if we will endure. As we abide, we're going to bear fruit. Our knowledge of spiritual things is going to abound. Our discernment will abound. We will continually be worked on by God. And then Paul continues in verse 10. He says that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Man, it's such a great plan. That's God's plan for you. The Lord has so much in store for His people, even on this side of eternity. And he says, I want your lives to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. He says, I want your love to be abounding more and more. He says, I want you to be locked in relationship with people who care about you as my grace and my affection works through them and works through you to knit you to one another. It's easy for us to feel the pressure of the onslaughts we face each day, some of the things we've been talking about in our spiritual warfare series, the battles that we face as we live out the Christian life on this side of eternity. But when we come back to base camp here and take a look at what our commander has said, I hope we're refreshed to see the victory and the plenty and the fullness of God's spiritual plan for His people. The question is this, where are you, where am I in the permit process of all this? Are we on the road to the land God wants, or are we hanging back like Abraham did for five years? Are you partaking of grace that the Lord has made available? Do we believe God and follow Him? Do we let His mind be in us and His affection be in us and His understanding and His desires? Do we let those things drive our heart and our decisions? Because if we don't partake of that grace, there's no way we're going to enjoy His peace, and there's no way we're going to enjoy His fullness or the fruit of righteousness or the kind of joy that the Lord wants for us. God is working, He wants to work in you because you are significant and you are someone that He loves. Let's permit Him to work the way He wants in our lives and in our minds and in our desires and in our actions. Let's do that work, and let's worship Him now as we celebrate what He's done for us, who He is, and what He's still going to do. Let's pray.